a mighty fortress is our God, I suppose. I don't know, but I enjoyed those. Those are from my high school days. Would you open your Bible with me, please, to our key verse for the study on Sunday nights, last week, and this one, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where we are reminded by the apostle that though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul Bilheimer, in his book, Destined for the Throne, has written, prayer is where the action is. Any church without a well-organized and systematic prayer program is simply operating a religious treadmill. Let me read that again. Any church without a well-organized and systematic prayer program is simply operating a religious treadmill. That's a powerful statement. It's a strong statement. I don't think he's overstating the case. Prayer is where the action is. Prayer is not merely a support ministry for the battle. Prayer is the front line. You're saying, I don't have a machine gun or a bazooka or a cannon. All I have is an intercontinental ballistic missile. <laughs> About all I can do is pray. Well, lob the missile then. God gives us mighty spiritual weapons for the battlefield of life. Last week we said that the use of the weapon of prayer is our right as believers. It is our right based upon our identity as children of God. You remember we've had a profound change in our identity. Whereas once we were identified with Adam and his sin, now, by God's grace, we are identified with Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We were in Adam. Now we are in Christ. Now, that's not just a play on words. It's not just a simple little thought. It describes a profound change in our position before God. Because we are in Christ, he tells us that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And as we examined that first paragraph of Ephesians, we noted that we have complete acceptance with God. We have complete forgiveness with God. We have complete understanding of what God is doing in the big picture of things. We have a complete inheritance as God's children, and we have complete security in the position that God has given to us. Because of this, because of this position and the blessings that come with it, we can approach God with boldness and confidence, or what he calls in Ephesians 3.12, freedom of speech and freedom of entrance. He says it this way, in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We have freedom of speech and freedom of entrance. 
Last May, I was privileged to be with some other evangelical uh, leaders across the country at a seminar, a briefing in, in Washington. And on one day, they arranged for us to have our briefing in the old executive office building next to the White House. In order to get into the place, we had to be there an hour, an hour and a half before our appointment. We had to have identification. Uh, we had to have sent our names ahead of time in order to get through the, the uh, security clearance. Uh, there were these metal detector kinds of gates set up. There were guards around before we could ever get into the hallways of the old executive office building. Once inside, we had freedom. In fact, uh, we went to the briefing, and after it was done, I looked at the names of all the people who had their offices in this structure, and one of them was Vice President Daniel Quayle. And so I decided, well, I think I ought to go see Dan Quayle. Now, I've never met the man, but I have a lot of admiration for uh, the courage that he has displayed in the last four years. And so uh, I went to see if I could get near his office. <clears throat> Hey, I was in the building. I walked right up to his office. I didn't get to see him. He wasn't there, and had he been there, I'm sure I wouldn't have seen him either. But I was able to walk right to his office and talk to the secretary that is right outside of his door that sees him go in and out all the time. And so I left my message for him with her. And she said, well, I'd, I'd be glad to give it to him, but I hardly ever talk to him. <laughs> so I left it with a very important person, I'm sure. But the thing I'm illustrating to you is that once I got past that certain point, I had freedom of access in that building. You see, when we're in Jesus Christ, we have freedom of access to the very throne room of God. We can walk right in. There's no guard there. There's not a secretary outside the door. God says, come on in. And we may enter freely and there speak with our God. It's the right that we have as believers because of who we are in Christ. That's the key, that we're in Christ. That gives us the freedoms that I've just spoken about. Now, to experience victory in the warfare that Paul alludes to in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we must take several steps that he outlines in the book of Ephesians. So if you're flipping back and forth between the two, trying to figure out where I'm going to light, I'm going to Ephesians. So turn there with me to the sixth chapter. <clears throat> these steps will lead you to an effective prayer practice in your life. Uh, this is a familiar paragraph beginning in verse 10 where we find step number one. Rely on your adequacy. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We do not have to cower before the enemy. We do not have to run from the enemy. We don't have to be afraid of the enemy. We would be foolish not to have a certain respect for his power. But greater is he who is in us than our enemy. We can be strong in the Lord. We can rely upon our adequacy in Jesus Christ for the spiritual battlefields of life. We have been made adequate, not because of who we are in ourselves, because, but because of who we are in Christ. He says, be strong, or literally, be continually strengthened. 
It's a present tense. It's something that's to be ongoing. It's a, it's a practice of our lives. Be continually strengthened. Draw up on your adequacy in the Lord and the strength of his might that he provides you. If you enter the battles of life, looking over your shoulder and half afraid, with your tail almost tucked between your legs, I guarantee you, you will be defeated on the battlefield. In the battles of life, you must enter into the battle relying upon your adequacy in Christ. You must realize who you are in Christ and the sufficiency that you have in him. You lack nothing that you need to be victorious. And you need not cower before your enemy. Rely on your adequacy, step number one. Step number two, think on your adversary. Verse 12. You have to read the realm of existence, the spiritual realm. You must think on your adversary. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He's already talked about the schemes of the devil in verse 11. He explains by saying, our struggle, our combat, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces, and spiritual wickedness, all of these in the heavenly places, in the realm of spiritual things. It's hard for us to grasp what the heavenlies is because uh, we're so used to living in the material. That's what we relate to. Our senses all relate us to this physical world. But uh, as most of you know, there is a whole other realm of reality that interacts with the material realm. And while we can't see it, there is activity in that spirit realm that impacts what happens in the realm that you and I interact with, the material. We must realize that our real enemy is no person. It is no group of people. It's not a political party. Our real enemy is Satan and his hordes who are described in verse 12. There are different kinds and different levels of demonic authority. He suggests those here. But the fact is that all of them have one single purpose. They are committed to your defeat. They desire to put you aside in this world as far as being effective for God is concerned. That's the only thing they're concerned about with you. They know that they cannot have your soul because you have complete security in Christ. Therefore, they would have your life. They want your effectiveness. They want your time. They want to break you of your devotion to Christ, of your commitment to his cause. That is their goal. We need to think on our adversary, understand who he really is. Let me just say that I agree with what some of you have said to me, and that is the battle seems to be getting worse. I don't know that we can go back and say, well, it began to get worse here or there. Except that 
It seems that in our culture, the Western culture, in our nation, with its Judeo-Christian heritage, there seemed to be certain walls that were in place. Even though ours has not been a Christian nation in the sense that Israel was the people of God, our nation has been founded on certain principles that are consistent with Christian teaching. And because of that, there have been certain walls in place. I believe that the walls are gone. And the walls crumbled in the 60s, about 25 years ago, with that tremendous cultural revolution that took place and the upheaval. And what was round one in the 60s is becoming round two in the 90s. If you enjoyed the 60s, you'll love the 90s. And if you hated the 60s, watch out for the days ahead. There is an intensification of spiritual warfare in our culture. It is going to be tougher than it has ever been before to live for Jesus Christ in the years ahead. And I think the reason for that is that the uh, purpose for this nation and God's plan is uh, perhaps coming to its conclusion. God raises up nations and peoples for a time, and then when they have fulfilled their purpose and proven that they're worthy of judgment, God brings the judgment they deserve. But I think also that spiritual warfare is increasing in our nation because Satan knows that his time is short, that the Lord's coming is near at hand. I am not among those who... Uh, are predicting the rapture on October 30th or 31st, whatever the date is this year. But I do believe that the Lord's coming is near at hand, and Satan realizes his time is short and is therefore pushing all the more for his ends. We need to think about our adversary. Realize that he's not a figment of the imagination. He's not over there somewhere in a mission field. He is active and increasingly active in our culture. If you and I are going to have an effective prayer life, we need to take that second step and understand who we need to pray against. Begin to understand how we need to pray. Number three, put on your armor. If you want to be effective in your prayer life, you must put on your armor. Verse 11 says, put on the panoply of God, the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the craftiness of the devil, the methods of the devil that are filled with deceit, is what the word means. Put on the full armor of God. And he says something similar in verse 13. Take up the full armor of God. And so we have to put the armor on, and we have talked about this uh, a few years ago, and I'm not going to go into detail about it, except to have you note with me that it's a full armor and that its pieces represent uh, character and lifestyle and habit which must be in place in our lives if we're going to protect ourselves against the adversary's attacks. Uh, the first piece that is in Paul's list is the belt of truth. It seems to refer to integrity of character. It means not being a hypocrite. It means being honest and transparent and genuine about who you are, not living a lie. The belt of truth, 
He talks about the breastplate of righteousness, which in this context refers to a lifestyle that is characterized by good. It means to do deeds that reflect the kindness, the patience, and the love of God. He speaks about the shoes of peace that are to be on our feet. Here, the peace seems to refer to that peace that is in our hearts, that we're at peace with God, that confidence, that gives us strength, that God is for us, God is not against us, because our sins are forgiven. We have faith us. We immediately have faith there that says, no, God is not like that. God is this way, or God is that way. The shield of faith, which will extinguish the fiery darts of the evil once they hit. <clears throat> and the helmet of salvation. Here he's talking about the assurance that we can have, that expectation that God is ultimately in control of all things, and that one day he's going to rescue his own from the battlefield. It is the hope of glory that we have the helmet of salvation, and then the sword that he calls the sword of the Spirit. This word of God, he says, this rhema, this spoken, proclaimed utterance from God. In other words, this sword is some specific word that God has given us in this book that is appropriate for the particular battle we're in. Thus, we need to fill our minds with what God says to us so that we have this sword available and can fight back against the enemy. Now I want you to notice that we're responsible for this armor. It is our job to put it on, to take it up. Failure to do that, failure to have these aspects of character and lifestyle and habit in place, leaves us vulnerable to the enemy. We are prone to defeat because we are not covered by our armor. And so if we are going to enter into the warfare, we must take up our armor. John Dorsey has written a poem describing the devil's tactics in, uh, in the battle. It says, I had a battle fierce today within my place of prayer. I went to meet and talk with God, but I found Satan there. He whispered, you can't really pray. You lost out long ago. You might say words while on your knees, but you can't pray, you know. So then I pulled my helmet down, way down upon my ears, and found it helped to still his voice and helped to lay my fears. I checked my other armor or my feet in peace were shod, my loins with truth were girded round, my sword the word of God, my righteous breastplate still was on, my heart's love to protect, my shield of faith was all intact, his diary, fiery darts bounced back. I called on God in Jesus' name, I pled the precious blood. While Satan sneaked away in shame, I met and talked with God. If there's any place that Satan will seek to defeat you, it's at the place of prayer. And that brings us to our fourth step in spiritual warfare. Once we have put our armor on, we need to focus on our assignment. And what is that assignment? Well, he begins by saying, stand your ground, stand firm. 
When he says that, he is implying that we have been assigned a strategic place in the battle. And having been assigned that place, we are to stand there and not give an inch to Satan when he attacks us. Stand firm, he says, against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm, he repeats in verse 14. That's our assignment. We're not to give in. We're not to run. If we have our armor in place, we will not be defeated. We are to stand firm in that place where God's assigned us. How do we do that? Well, by going on to verse 18, by praying. What are we to pray? Well, he says we're to, prayer all, we're to pray all prayer and petition. The word prayer here is a general word for prayer to God. Petition refers to those specific things that we would ask of him. <clears throat> the NIV puts it this way. We're to pray all kinds of prayers and requests. The most powerful kind of prayer, perhaps, is praise. Because when you and I praise God, we are focusing on the character of God. And when we focus on who God is, that stimulates our faith. And it is our faith which wins the battle. This is the victory that overcomes our faith. And so when you and I praise God, we lift our hearts to God in praise and thanksgiving, and we honor him for who he is. It causes our faith to be built up. But with all kinds of prayer and specific petitions, we are to pray. And when? He says at all times. On all occasions, we're developed to develop a God awareness so that whatever the affair that we're in, whatever the controversy, whatever the questions or the confusion, we include Jesus with us in that experience by prayer. On all of the occasions of your life, pray at your assignment to stand. And how are we to do it? He says, in the Spirit, in the sphere of the Spirit, depending upon Him, asking Him to enable you to pray, to be on the alert, he says. That's how we're to do it. By being vigilant and watchful. And he says we're also to do this with all perseverance and petition. In other words, it's no others who love us and whom we love. Others that we've never met. Others who are spiritual leaders. In fact, Paul invites them and pray for us, he says in verse 19. Pray for us. And what does he say to pray for? That we may fulfill the mission, he says, that God's given us. And so we need to pray about our purpose, our assignment in the world as a church. These are all things that we're to pray for. Our warfare praying is not so much against the enemy in a negative sense as it is affirming who God is, what his promises are, and asking God to act. Oh, that God would teach us how to pray. How to enter into prayer that is effective in warfare. We can hear a thousand sermons on that subject and we can read dozens of books. We can listen to scores of tapes. But it's only when we get down on our knees and begin to practice it that we will really begin to learn what warfare praying is. 
fact is that our praying reveals a lot about our theology. Have you ever listened to somebody pray? You say, well, of course, that's the only the polite thing to do. Well, have you ever really listened to what people pray? I mean, if you really want to get personal about it, have you ever listened to what you pray? What you and I pray reveals our theology. It may not be what we studied in school if we took a theology course. It may not be what we read in the book if we read a theology book. But what we pray says truly what we believe about God. Timothy Warner writes, if most of our prayers are really a reflection of our concept of the glory and power of God, our theology is in serious need of overhaul. So often we pray with just repetitious words. If you could just take the word just out of praying, and Lord, just do this, and Lord, just do that. Have you ever heard that in your own praying? What does that mean? What is just doing in there? God can do more than just that. We ask God for some of the silliest things. And Lord, I pray that when they operate on Brother Smith, that they'll not find any cancer. Well, what if there's cancer there that needs to be found? Do you want God to blind the eyes of the surgeon? We need to listen to what we say in our prayers. My appeal to all of us tonight is that we make prayer a priority. Back in the 1840s, there was an earnest young man who found employment for himself in a pawn shop of all places. He did not like the work, actually, but he did the work, as he writes, as unto the Lord. And he looked for a more desirable opportunity that God might give him. He really wanted to serve the Lord. That was his heart's desire. And so, to prepare himself, he wrote the following words in a resolution on a piece of paper. He said, I do promise God that I will rise early every morning to have a few minutes, not less than five, in private prayer. I will endeavor to conduct myself as a humble, meek, and zealous follower of Jesus. And by serious witness and warning, I will try to lead others to think of the needs of their immortal souls. I hereby vow to read no less than four chapters in God's Word every day. I will cultivate a spirit of self-denial and will yield myself a prisoner of love to the Redeemer of the world. Now, who do you think it was that made that kind of resolution that perhaps some of us have made from time to time? But he kept it. Well, his name was William Booth. William Booth founded the Salvation Army, the organization that still today bears that name, General William Booth. And what a difference he made in the 19th century. And his resolution began by saying, I will pray five minutes a day. I don't know, is it five minutes or maybe ten that you need to say to God, I will spend time with you in prayer? I want to appeal to you to make prayer a priority in your life. If it has slipped down a notch or two or ten, get it back up where it belongs. 
because prayer is a mighty spiritual weapon that God gives to us to employ in spiritual warfare. And when you and I wield it, we are wielding spiritual intercontinental ballistic missiles. Let's pray together. Father, teach us to pray. Not just to say words, not to employ phrases that we hear others use and mindlessly repeat, but teach us really to pray. Forgive us for our theology. Teach us what you're really like and show us how to pray in light of that. Many of us need to begin over again. Lord, take us through elementary school. And lead us on, we pray, by your Spirit to the postgraduate place of learning about prayer. We need that, Father. We need it. Your work in the world needs it, and you have commanded it of us. So teach us to pray. Amen.